listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And here's a funny one, University Bloat. And um, this sort of shocks me because I'd heard about it in the United States and I, it never occurred to me that we would be confronting a similar thing in New Zealand. But the New Zealand initiative uh, with Dr. Michael Johnson and James Kerstead have taken a look at New Zealand universities and the findings, to me, are truly gobsmacking. James, good morning. Good morning, Rodney. I should point out that you work at Victoria University, right? That's right. I still do. Yeah, I work half time at Victoria University as a senior lecturer in classics uh, for the time being, and uh, and half my time at the New Zealand Initiative as a research fellow. So, I don't mean to pry, but um, does that work for you? Splitting your time fifty fifty, and what's the logic of that for you? Is that there's not enough work at the university, or that you prefer <laughs> to get out? Uh, no, I mean it's. Um, I, I really like the arrangement. And uh, hopefully I can continue it. But um, there are a lot of things. I mean, uh, I think I was I was a little bit unhappy at the university just because of all the sort of um, ideology, to be honest, coming from the yes. institution. So I feel more comfortable with the New Zealand Initiative because it's a bit more open-minded. Um, but um, yeah, it was just a really good opportunity for me to kind right. of um, do something else and get more experience in another field. And that's important nowadays because, of course, there are there are lots of cuts in the humanities and in academia, so it's yeah. nice to be able to develop other skills. Well, I'm late to thinking and reading about classics. I I was in my 30s. I got very interested in philosophy, and I le- read um, Plato and Aristotle in translation, of course, and read books that would um, explain them to me and, and and I absolutely loved it. And I found myself having a conversation in my head with Socrates about how he because I got into how he saw the world. I got so into it that I actually took on board his view of the world and Plato. And I had never been presented with this idea of looking at the world in a completely different way because I'd just grown up and we looked at the world the way we looked at the world. And I found it remarkable experience. And so, but I wasn't interested in the history of, uh, or ancient history, but latterly, uh, as I've got reading and got interested in history, I have found ancient history, Greek and Roman history, absolutely um, just what's the word? You know, you just can't stop. It's just the most extraordinary, wonderful thing, on the basis that so sophisticated, so amazing, so different, and we understand such a lot of what was going on. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that experience you had of reading Plato and Aristotle and thinking, "Wow, this is different." I mean, that's the experience a lot of people have when they read old books. You know especially from the ancient world, because it's, it is a different time, it's a different culture. But at the same time, I think um, people often find things that are familiar in it. So it's yes. this really weird um, impression you get of these people are different, but they're also kind of like us in some ways. And I, I definitely remember 
reading that for the first time and sort of thinking classical Athenians are kind of more like us than say Anglo-Saxons in the middle ages. There's something about them that's maybe it's the democracy or something. Um, So it's, I think a really productive space for students to go into and to, and to sort of think in that space, you know, because it's very much, yeah, they're kind of like us, but there's also differences and, you know, some of those differences are kind of nasty and some of those differences are interesting. They do things differently. They do democracy. differently. Yeah. It's very thought producing. And when, when I started off, I started off thinking they were just like us, right? Just not as smart or, you know, hadn't climbed on shoulders as high as we could climb. But then I quickly realized, not through my own reading, but by reading about scholars who were studying it, that yes, it was a different worldview. You know, Plato's theory of the forms is very coherent, actually. And I started to see the world and have a conversation with how he would how he would see the world that I was in. And it's very, very mind expanding. Um, and I came greatly to appreciate it. And I of all the things that I could think about studying at university, it's pretty high up there. Mm. Yeah, no, these guys aren't stupid, Plato and Aristotle. And, no. uh, and yeah, I mean, the, a lot of people have that reaction that you've had. I mean, we, luckily in New Zealand, we've got a really good tradition of teaching classical studies at, at mm. secondary schools without the languages. Um, and so a lot of people come from secondary school to university already kind of convinced, rightly in my opinion, that there's lots of interest in the classical world. Um, and yeah, you, you do read these texts and yeah, you get that impression that, like I said before, they're different in some ways, and in some ways they're similar. And also, they're kind of impressive in some ways, and in other ways, they're less impressive. Yes. But you definitely often have this experience. I remember having it, I remember this experience very clearly when I was um, at university. I went to see a production of Sophocles' play, Antigone. And um, it's a very kind of dialectical play. You know, different people are making different arguments about, basically the play is about whether you should obey the law if it's something right. So Antigone kind of buries her brother, even though the the tyrant of the city-state has said she can't, because she says, oh, there are there are unwritten laws. I have to obey the unwritten laws of the gods. So it's, it's a very philosophical play. Mm. And I just remember hearing all these beautiful speeches on the different sides of that argument and thinking, you know, we we actually have something to learn from these people. We have something to learn from these people that were that are now like 2,500 years in the past. It's astonishing. Yes. It is astonishing. And the other thing that amazes me, and correct me if I've got this wrong, um, but I got fascinated by Julia, Julius Caesar, amongst others, because they were great men. You know, there's no way around it. You know, they were big men. And you're trying to understand how they could become so big and bestrid the world, to quote um, Shakespeare. But that a school kid in the old days, 50s and 60s, would be learning Latin and would be reading the commentaries. So Julius Caesar's account of his 10-year war in Gaul, and he would be, the student would actually be reading, as I understand it, what Caesar wrote. Is that correct? No, that's right. I mean, that's what I did when I was at uh, secondary school in England. And actually, Caesar is often one of the first texts that you read yes. when you're studying Latin because 
um, you know, he was a very energetic, vigorous chap and um, very straightforward, I think, in some ways, although also with the with the ability to kind of um, deceive others when he needed to. Oh, yeah. But his, but his prose is very straightforward, actually. It's very direct. And because of that, his sentences are relatively simple. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we read a lot about his uh, campaigns in Gaul and, you know, trying to go over to England and that kind of thing. And uh, my colleague at the university, Jeff Tatum, he actually has written a, a commentary. He's, he's written things on, on Caesar, including a reader, you know, the, the most interesting passages of Caesar's prose for, you know, packaged for people who are starting Latin. So you can look up the notes at the end and stuff. And yeah, all this stuff, as you say, it's, it's amazingly uh, accessible. You know, you can't actually read the words of this person who, as you said, is this gigantic figure in, in human history. And who died before Christ. You yeah, know. that's right. And that's the other thing. I, I I often tell the students, you know, you should always sort of keep that feeling of wonder that we're reading these works. I mean, uh, we can read Homer as well. I mean, yes. Homer was written down, well, it's actually kind of unclear when, but it's probably sometime in the 8th or 7th centuries BC. Yeah. So that's like 700 years before Jesus, obviously. And yeah, yeah and you're reading this very ancient Greek and it's, it's just kind of mind-blowing. And Herodotus? Yeah, Herodotus. I mean, that's fifth century BC. We've got a lot from the fifth century BC, but still, it's it's astonishing. And the, the stories that Herodotus retells in his work, the histories, a lot of them are about Persia and they're about Egypt and they're about you know this earlier periods, right, going back to the sixth century BC. So, yeah, and it, as with with Herodotus, as with all these sources, you know, you can't trust everything that you read, obviously. No. But still, it's it's an amazing gift, I guess, from the past that we still got these guys and and. A lot of it was lost, of course, like the vast majority of ancient Greek and and Latin literature was lost. And recently I just put up on my Twitter, uh, I said to the world, you know, if you had, if you could magically recover one lost work of antiquity, what would it be? And I thought, oh, it's just like a kind of niche thing. And I got so many responses. I got you dozens and dozens of responses, people suggesting various things that we know existed, but we've lost and we can't read it. So that's the other side of it is that we have this wonderful stuff, but, but the amount we've lost is also huge. Yeah, it's like we've got 1% or something. I've something seen like that, yeah. And yeah. that was the big loss, the burning of the Library of Alexandria? Um, or was it just I think part? that I, I think that was a very big deal. Uh, I think there's other things as well. I mean, you're talking about scrolls. I mean, what you really need to do to, to be transmitted into the modern era is... Um, be copied by monks in the Middle Ages. Um, there, there's some transmission of text through the Arabs, th- through Muslim scholars. But most of it goes through Byzantium or through uh, Christian monasteries in the West. And going through Christian monasteries in the West means that there are these scribes and these scriptoria, these rooms where they're copying texts, who are copying you. And a lot of them, once you're into the Middle Ages, they don't necessarily know Greek. They know Latin, yes. but maybe they're not familiar with the kind of classical Latin. So they make a lot of errors. They'll make a lot of mistakes. Yes. So the texts that do survive are often quite well corrupted, as we as we call them. Yeah. But there's also loads of texts which are just not copied, and there's a little bit of a sort of Christian bottleneck there. So the the authors that survive tend to be ones who um, whose views are kind of they're not Christian, obviously, because they're all pre-Christian, but they're sort of views that are compatible with Christianity. So Plato, Christians like Plato and Aristotle, especially once they figure out how to kind of meld them together, but Plato thinks that there's an immortal soul, for example. Yeah. So he's always copied. And there are these guys, uh, very tantalizingly, we know about all these philosophers before Plato, the pre-Socratic philosophers, 
And they, and from what we can tell, they have these really interesting ideas, like much wider array of ideas than even in Plato and Aristotle. But we've lost them all, and it seems be, it seems to be because the Christians really didn't like those guys. <laughs> and an, <laughs> so another example, like the FBI with Facebook or something. Yeah, and another another example of that is um, this really fascinating poem, Lucretius uh, De Rerum Natura, which means yes. uh, on the nature of things. And that we do actually have, but that really hung by a thread. We there was one manuscript that was found by this Italian guy in the Renaissance, Poggio Bracciolino. And uh, yeah, he just found it in a monastery, I think in Germany. And that's why we have that work. And, and that, that work is a highly sort of anti-religious work. He says, everything can be explained by the movement of atoms in a void. Everything we see is just the product of atoms coming together. And it's, like, it's another one of those moments where it's like it's astonishingly modern. Mm. Um, but then he also sort of says weird things like, you know, the moon that's exactly the size it looks. It's not really far away. It's exactly, you know, he says strange things like that, but then a lot of it is actually kind of along the right lines. And, and we wouldn't have known about that. Well, you know, we would have known about it, but we wouldn't have been able to read any of it if, if it hadn't survived. And, and that's our best evidence really for this whole life philosophy called Epicureanism, which, which was a huge thing in the Hellenistic period, the period after the classical Greek period. So, I mean, there's all these ideas and you know, worldviews out there that we're trying to recover and um, we've succeeded, but yeah, we've also lost a lot of the pictures. So to me, that makes it even more fascinating. It is, it is extraordinary. Just hearing you talk, I just get so enthused. And what, well, we got onto this before bloke, but what made you decide, you know, you, you learned classics at school in England, which is something I wish I had learned. But what made you decide to commit to it as your area of study and expertise? You know, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I did like it. I remember first time I started studying Greek, I, I really loved it. And I'd previously been read Greek myths by my mother. Yes, uh, by Robert Graves or someone, was it? It wasn't actually Robert Graves. I mean, that would have been a more kind of classic take, but it was yeah. just sort of random retellings of Greek myths for children's okay. books. Uh, not very sophisticated, but it. It really got me into it, and and then when I had when I went to England, I had the chance to learn Greek. I started doing Greek, and I remember really enjoying that. But then what what, what it came down to in the end was that in in England, um, the subjects you can study at university they have a much more narrow curriculum. So you basically have to choose one subject to study. And I was going to do English, and then someone said to me, "Well, you, you know, you're doing really well in Latin and Greek. Why don't you do classics? Because then you can study history, you can study languages, you can study mm -hmm. literature, and you can study philosophy." And I thought, that sounds great. Uh, so I think if I'd been in New Zealand or the States, I would have just done a sort of normal degree and I would have taken lots of different courses. But mm -hmm. in England, that seemed to be the best way. And so I did the course called Classics or Literae Humaniores at Latin, which means uh, at Oxford, which in Latin means something like the more humane letters. So it's a really old fashioned course. And they just make you read a ton of this stuff. Like you're meant to read all of uh, the Iliad in Greek all of the Aeneid and Latin, you know, so you just really get completely immersed in And the Aeneid is the, is the origin of Rome, is it not? Where yeah, the, that's right. And, and, um, and it connects, and it connects, I believe, to the sacking of Troy and the escape and all the rest of it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And that's another really good one to read. I mean, that one actually, in some ways, it doesn't have that good a reputation nowadays because it's seen as kind of propaganda for the Roman state. But I would mm. encourage listeners like to have a look at it in translation because it's really it really draws you in. It's actually a really exciting read. And um, book two is the story of the fall of Troy because Aeneas is this prince of Troy, 
And it's actually heartbreaking. I, I, I find it like really moving because this, his whole life is kind of collapsing around him. But then he kind of leaves Troy and he has, he has this sense that he has this kind of divine mission, though he doesn't really understand what it is. And eventually he goes to Italy and he has to fight these wars in Italy. And it's really the story of a man who's kind of um, part of history. He has a role in history, and he, but he doesn't really understand it. He doesn't necessarily like it either. <laughs> He'd probably rather have just stayed in Troy. But it's uh, so it, it may be uh, it may be propaganda to some extent, but it's not kind of coarse propaganda. It's actually beautifully done. It's beautiful. Well, I read bits, not obviously originally, but the you know when I've looked at Roman history, and it is a, the stunning stories with great moral dilemmas written across them, and uh, as you say, heartbreaking. And they come alive to you. You're not reading dead stuff, if you know what I mean. It, it's 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 vivid and very human, very real, and very tragic. And and of course, Plutarch's Lives, which gave so, us so much of Shakespeare. Um, these these amazing lives. Now, <clears throat> you went on and studied it, and I should say to listeners that. You went to very distinguished universities because you did your undergraduate at Oxford and then you did your master's and PhD at Stanford. Um, these aren't these aren't Kaukaki universities. These are the best of the best. And I understand Oxford and I understand Stanford that when it comes to classics, they were setting they set the standard. Yeah, I mean, in very different ways as well. So Oxford is um, really kind of one of the traditional centers of classics, obviously, in Europe or in the UK. So it's been doing it for a long time. I mean, from the very beginnings, which in Oxford's case are the 12th century. Um, so but the, <laughs> They have the, a background in it. They do have a bit of a background, yeah. But I mean, the, the Oxford Classics course, I mean, it changed a lot over time, but the version we have now is still essentially like a 19th century course. And I, I believe wow. when they reformed it in the 19th century, they were actually inspired partly by the Chinese exam system. And they were thinking, we need to send all these chaps out to the empire, to, to, to India, to rule the empire. And so we want to prepare them well. So we're going to prepare them in, in letters. It was the idea of like producing these learned literary mandarins. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it's based around that. So you really get a very broad view of the, the literature of the ancient world. Stanford was very different. Um, because Oxford is quite conservative in its approach um, to these things, to scholarship. Stanford Classics was a little bit more revolutionary uh, in the sense that, at least when I was there, and it's still pretty much like this, it was sort of dominated by people who are interested in the social sciences. Because I think if, when you're out in California, you're not in Europe, you know, it's not quite mm. so traditional. You don't sort of see these ancient monuments around you. And instead, you're in this, um, you're in this context where it's Silicon Valley, a lot mm. of people are doing computer science. They're working with numbers, statistics, and so so on and so forth. And so a lot of the professors I studied with there were interested in doing kind of quantitative studies of the ancient world, like how many people were there, uh, how many of them died in this plague, uh, how much money did they have, how much were they taxing their citizens, that sort of thing. And you can actually get much further than you might think with that kind of stuff. We don't have you know statistics that are good um, by mm. modern standards, but we can often kind of... Um, reconstruct what was going on. So I found that also extremely interesting. I uh, got fascinated by how Caesar would feed his army. 
for some reason. Because I thought, how do you have these tens of thousands of men marching across Europe and feed them? And I discovered a PhD that had been written on precisely this point. And uh, he had the, he literally had the calorific breakdown of what a soldier would eat and how they'd bake bread and how that. And then, um, and then from that, I got fascinated by logistics and um, again, how the Roman army would move and camp. And I mean, that's an extraordinary, you'll know all about it, but it's it's just an extraordinary story of how the men at their next campsite would be building the campsite and the men at the last one would be still taking it down. You know, they'd stretch out like army ants across the distance that they would travel and they would travel at a speed that General Patton in World War II admired because Mm. they could move so fast. These, yeah, are, the, these are these are fabulous things, aren't they? They're amazing, yeah. And um, there's a, a Greek writer, Polybius. Yes. Um, and uh, his and he, was a first-hand, he was a first-hand account, I think, at um, the Fall of Carthage, am I right? He was exactly, that's exactly right, yeah. So you know, you know as much about Polybius as a, a lot of my first-year students now, which is, uh, <laughs> which is great, because um, I really just give them a kind of introdu- quick introduction. Uh, but yeah, his his great question in his histories was basically why did Rome take over what he saw as the whole world, you know, the world yes. of the Mediterranean. And he was Greek, and, was he? Yeah, he was originally Greek. The um, Greek slave. Uh, he was sla- he was uh, taken captive by the Romans. Yes. Um, but, uh, when they were fighting in, in Greece, but um, he was kind of a uh, quite he, an upper class yes. hostage. So he yes. was allowed to kind of write his stuff in the yes. in the. Uh, in the circle of the Scipios. Yeah. But um, yeah, his, his great question was, how did they manage to take over everything? And he has several answers to this. One is their peculiar constitution, but another one is just look at how good these guys are, are building camps. And he has this whole description of how they, how the Romans built camps and how quickly they do it. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the Greeks know how to fight wars. I mean, they they have a long experience yeah. of that themselves and they you know, obviously they defeated the Persians and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, they're really impressed by the, by the Romans and what they achieve. And the Romans learned from the Greeks and built upon it. They'd learn and, and um they and the, the other great one was if, from Polybius, every camp they built was identical. Yeah. And layout. And so there was no confusion when you came to yeah. do anything because right. it was an identical camp. I think he even says something like in the if if there's a com- some kind of skirmish in the middle of the night, the Romans always know where they are because the camp is yes. always structured in the same way. Isn't that ex- yeah. isn't that it's just it's yeah. um extraordinarily um w- wonderful. And and I guess what I love about it, James, is that we know such a lot because there were people like Polybius. Yep. Not just writing it down, but analyzing it. I mean, these are the Herodotus sort of invented history. Um, Polybius invented sort of logistics and studying these things and working out the whys. Um, Plutarch invented biography. Obviously, Western philosophy was invented. And it's all an amazing, it's not like a myth. It's the, the, this is the start of the real deal of reporting. 
Yeah, I mean, that's something that Thucydides stresses, actually, in his history of the Peloponnesian War. He kind of says, I was there, and not only that, I interviewed people who were involved in all these battles. And he actually sort of says, it's funny because I interview people on both sides, and they actually have quite different views of what went on. So, <laughs> so he's aware that people have different sides to a story, and he tries yeah. to reconcile them. But let me just pick out one thing you said at the beginning there, which is that the Romans learned from the Greeks. I actually think that this is this is one of the things that people kind of least appreciate before they study a bit of classics, which is just that the the Roman Empire, even at the height of the Roman Empire, it was really bicultural, right? Yes. So in the eastern half of it, uh, Greek was by far the most common language, and the and the Romans kind of admitted the upper class Romans admitted that they they thought you know we're obviously better at war and administration. But the Greeks are much more cultured than us, and mm -hmm. they take the lead in philosophy and oratory and things like that. So all of the most impressive, most successful Roman aristocrats, people like Caesar and Cicero, they would have studied in Greece. I mean, Cicero yeah. actually went and, and studied oratory in two different schools, both the main schools of Greek oratory. And so they all would have been fluent in Greek. And that's why when Caesar actually gets stabbed, well, we have an account that in, in Plutarch that he says the words he speaks are in Greek. He says, Kaisu technon, you know, he actually yeah. says the words in Greek. So they, they, they would have been quite fluent in Greek. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that stabbing of um, Caesar is so shocking because he conquered France, what we know now as France, went to England twice, had the Civil War waged across what was it, Greece. North Africa, yep. uh, up through Spain, and succeeds against all odds every time and gets back, and he's stabbed <laughs> in yep. the Senate yep. by his literally adopted son. Yeah. Um, and, and this, you just can't imagine how he could have risen to such stature, um, what he was like. Um, and again, you come across this through history, don't you? You 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 can't quite picture Winston Churchill now even, that the stature of these people that bestride the times and uh, Napoleon, uh, Caesar, uh, these, he, he, he was extraordinary. Now, it must be. I, I agree. I mean, well, let me just say one, one thing about that, though. It's interesting that I agree that these were astonishing men. Um, although, I mean, there's also these sort of structural considerations in the sense that once we get into the first century BC, the Roman Republic is really kind of coming apart, or at least it's yeah. kind of bursting at the seams, because you have this big problem that the, the, stru the structure is basically designed for this small town or city, which is expanding within Italy. You know, they have these two consuls, and they, you know, they send out armies under the consuls and they don't go very far really. And then they come back and they're only, they're only in office for one year. And then by the time you get to the first century, they're, they're away in Greece. And then with Caesar, they're away in Gaul. And so you get these people, these men who have these huge armies and in order to kind of allow them to continue campaigning, they keep giving them, uh, you know, greater power when they're away. And that's really what allows not only Caesar, but people like Pompey who yes. became one of his great rivals. Yes. to build up all this power. And so all the way through the first century BC, you get this problem with these guys, Sulla and Caesar and Cicero and Mark Antony. And um, that's really the problem for the Republic in the yes. first century BC. And then and obviously in the end, they don't solve it. What happens uh, is, of course, you know, Octavian takes over. He becomes the yeah. first emperor, Augustus.
Yeah. But no, yeah, they were, they were astonishing men as well. There's no doubt. Um, how would you, what would you advise a listener whose interest is piqued by this? How do you approach getting into it? I actually tell them what you apparently are doing, Rodney, which is to look at the sources themselves, because I, yeah. I say to them, they're actually extremely well-written. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're written in, in a way that sort of draws the reader in. Yes. And, the, and the Greeks and the Romans, they thought about literature not as this kind of really obscure thing. You had to be sort of super clever and avant-garde. Um, it was a form of communication. It was a form of yeah. rhetoric. It was a form of kind of showing the reader what was happening and convincing the reader of, of mm-hmm. certain things. So I would say, like, if you're interested in the Greek side, I would say maybe pick up a copy of Herodotus's histories. Mm. Because uh, there are all these stories that Herodotus went around the ancient Greek and also the ancient Eastern Mediterranean. He probably went to Egypt, he went to Persia, and he collected all these stories and he puts them all in a book. And as I say, it's kind of a, kind of amazing and astonishing to read all these different stories mm. uh, about the Persian Empire, the Egyptians, etc. And yeah, on the Roman side, I don't know what I would first pick up. I mean, you, you couldn't you could do worse than actually just starting to read the Aeneid because yeah. it's a beautiful poem and I think it's actually an exciting read. And you also pick up a little bit of history because you can see how the Romans in the first century BC wanted to think of themselves, you know. Mm. Mm. And there are great podcasts. You know, there's, there's. I'm trying to think of the Roman one. There's like a, some gentleman has done a 400 episode podcast on the history of Rome that I've dipped oh, yeah. into. And, I, I don't uh, doubt it. There, there, there are loads of them. I'm not actually very good at um, listening to podcast i tend to kind of just listen to one or two episodes but they're, yeah. they're amazing nowadays there are amazing things out there like yeah if you're really geeky there's also kind of a resurgence in spoken latin and spoken greek and there are a few podcasts ah. where people actually have conversations in latin <laughs> ah. so that's kind of impressive yeah now um from the rarefied atmosphere of oxford and stanford where you spent many many years Many, many years. We won't say how many because it's slightly embarrassing. Um, no, you should be proud of it, but you know what I mean. You spent yeah, a lot look, of time. Yeah. Um, you came to New Zealand and Victoria, and it must seem a bit small and distant. Yeah, it is a bit it is a bit small and distant. That's that's exactly right. But I mean, when I first came here, you know, I was really excited because as you probably know, as your listeners probably know, it's very difficult nowadays to get a job in academia. Mm. It's kind of a, a, something of an overproduction of PhDs. So a lot of people go out into the market and we're all applying for you know, 30 or 40 jobs every year. And I was, I was extremely fortunate that I managed to get one uh, when I was finishing my PhD, which nowadays is quite rare. Um, and uh, I think it helped because I cast my, my net very widely, obviously. Mm. <laughs> and I, because I, I lived in Canada for a long time, I kind of had, and then in England, I had this sense, like New Zealand was on the map for me because it was a Commonwealth country in a way, which I think for a lot of my friends in the States, it wasn't really. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, I I knew what it was and I considered it and I thought about it and then did the interview. It went really well, obviously. And so for me, it was just a great opportunity to to come over here. And, you know, I think one thing about classics is that, you know, classics tends to attract people who are quite intellectually committed. Like if you do a PhD in classics, you're in it for the field. You're not really in it to make money. You're not in it no. for anything else. So uh, classes tend to be quite smart. I mean, I'll just say that. And so it's good. I have a really good group of colleagues that I can work with at Vic. Mm. And um, so, yeah, as I say, it's, a, it's an opportunity, really but, but it is um, it is a long way away. It's a long way from from Europe, which is still really the center of classics. I mean, Europe mm. and maybe especially the East Coast of the States, actually. Mm. Um, 
So yeah, it's far away. And, and there, there are good and bad things about that. I mean, I think I kind of miss out on a lot of conferences. Nowadays, I often sort of zoom into conferences. Mm -hmm. But um, on the other hand, I think um, it's nice to be quite independent. Because mm -hmm. I, I feel like there are lots of trends in the field which sort of passed me by. And sometimes that was a good thing because I was I was quite far away. So I can kind of just do my own my own work over here. And you must find yourself with a big target on your head in the field as the purveyor of dead white men who um, weren't necessarily well disposed to indigenous people. <laughs> to put it bluntly. Well, that's right. Um, so so that, you you are the, yeah. you are you are a, a great headshot for the culture wars. All right, tell me about it. I mean, um, <laughs> it's actually a huge thing within my field as well. So yes. in the states, there's this pretty um, well. I don't know if it's a large movement, but it's a very kind of uh, loud one. I mean, you can see it on social media, and it's quite sort of strident which is this movement to sort of uh, talk about classics as implicit in white supremacism mm. and, and all that. And we have to kind of divest ourselves of this original sin of white supremacism. And uh, as you can probably hear already, I'm a bit skeptical of this, but it's, it's associated with some quite powerful people in the States. I mean, so Donna Zuckerberg, who's the sister of Mark Zuckerberg, she's actually a classicist. I mean, I don't think she's in the field anymore, but she did a PhD at Princeton. And she was very much of this view that, you know, the field was an inherently white supremacist, but I don't, I don't really see that personally. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think I very confidently say there are basically zero classicists working in classics programs who, who are white supremacists in any kind of ordinary meaning of the term. Of but of course, academics, they have a sort of special meaning of this term, which is extreme, extremely broad. Yes. And, um, I mean, the thing, one of the things they miss, I think is just that what they often do is they sort of focus on, basically they go to the white supremacist website. So they go to kind of stuff written under Mussolini or Hitler and they find connections with classics and they say, oh, look, these people are drawing on the ancient world in order to kind of boost their views. And that's obviously the case. I mean, especially with Mussolini, he really wanted to sort of revive the Roman Empire. Yeah, so there is course. that. That's an element of it. But you if have you're to in Rome, that, it makes sense, right? Yeah, but it's it's kind of bad methodology, right? Because yeah. you don't just sort of look at that aspect. You also have to look at everything else. And and so and you find if you look at everything else, you find that who are other people who were inspired by the classical world? Well, there's someone called Karl Marx who actually also studied classics for his PhD. Yeah. There's people like John Stuart Mill, who was kind of a centrist liberal, right? So there are all these people across the political spectrum who were inspired by the classics. And that, that's actually no surprise because European education, especially especially at the elite level, was always founded in the classics, you know, until very recently, it was overwhelmingly founded in the classics. And so, and the, and the ancient world is a huge place. It's very diverse in its own way. It has lots of different stuff going on. So it's really no surprise that, you know, anybody who was working in anything, basically, in 19th century, early 20th century Europe, they found some, they were able to find some inspiration and, uh, and some support in the ancient world. So I, I don't think it's just, it's not that, you know, you start studying classics, you become a white supremacist. I think that's absurd. Of course. But the other odd thing about Miss Zuckerberg is it's always these privileged type Princeton professors that have this overween, overweening guilt of, you know, whiteness and maleness and all the rest of it. But the other, the more peculiar thing to me is it would be hard, it's hard not to read history 
study history, study classics, study any period of history, and not come away, I would have thought, with a very serious understanding of how dangerous bad ideas are and what a flower is democracy, the supremacy of the individual over the collective, all these sort of free speech, all these sorts of things. Because the study of history is a study of tyrants. And the study of the classics is how, at some stages, the tyrants were tossed out. And they're looking at this and imposing a tyranny. You know what I mean? A thought tyranny yeah. on the world. And I just find that, I mean, class, classics and ancient history, of all the things that would teach you would be this wonder and openness. It's like science. Science, likewise, has been totally perverted. It should be the last thing that should be perverted. I can understand perverting psychology and sociology because, you know, they're not great fields of study. <laughs> but, um, but you make a good point. I mean, so like one of the things I, I'm interested in, and one of the reasons I find ancient Greece in particular interesting, and I basically tell the kids this when I'm teaching first year, it used to be, I used to have this course called the Greeks, was a, which was an introduction to basically the whole of ancient Greek civilization. Now we do it in an ancient save class, but I'm effectively teaching the same story. And what I say to them is, if you look at um, the first complex states, as they're called, that emerged in the Near East, it's really kind of the same structure again and again. And you can even see this in sort of very different empires, which emerged in different time periods, like the Khmer Empire and the Aztec Empire. They all basically have the same structure. You've got this big man at the top. It's almost always a man. And he kind of dominates. He, um, you know, the elite has a kind of monopoly on certain types of precious metal, or they have a lot more of it than everybody else. And they build these kind of pointy buildings that are meant to express the fact that they have an especially close alliance with the gods. Sometimes they say they're related to the gods. You know, it's a very hierarchical system. And so one of the interesting things is in Greece, after the Bronze Age collapse, when things start happening again in the Iron Age, so we're talking about sort of 1000 BC, 900 BC, 800 BC, when, it, when you know, the Greece that we, ancient Greece we know and love starts to develop, it actually takes a very different path. It's actually much more egalitarian. And you start having these city-states, which are kind of re Republican in a, in a weak sense, or eventually in the classical period, they're democratic. And so actually, the, one of the most distinctive things about Greek history is that it's it's more kind of democratic, maybe even more liberal democratic. So to me, it seems especially weird to say, if you study Greek history, you're going to become a fascist. It's I like, know. no, I mean, if anything, if I you know. study Persian history, you're going to become a fascist. Al although actually... Of course, it, this is something that people forget, and it should be really obvious. Just by studying the past, you study a past kingdom or monarchy, you don't automatically become, you don't no. automatically adopt the same political views as people no. had at that time, right? So you could, I, be, you could be a great student of the Nazis. Exactly, you could be a great student of the Nazis, and maybe yeah. you, you were doing that precisely because you disliked the Nazis. I mean, I think yeah. that most historians nowadays who study the Nazis, they don't become Nazis or, or no. want to. They think this is horrific, and we want to understand how it got that far, right? So, but but the, the thing you said about Princeton, I mean, it's interesting because um, Donna Zuckerberg isn't actually a professor at Princeton. She just did her PhD there, and then yes. she was an independent scholar for a while. But I think she's kind of left the field now anyway. But, you know, there are people... For example, Brown University, which is another one that's extremely wealthy, has something like a $5 billion endowment. And there's a scholar there who published this article saying, you know, classics must burn. You should burn classics down because it's so racist. And I just think it's very easy for people to say that when they have a position in the classics program at Brown because they're never going to lose their job, right? 
And the worst that might happen to them is that the is that they're going to change the title. They're going to not call it classics anymore. They're going to call it ancient civilizations, or they're going to call it ancient history. But I think those people need to understand that it's it's kind of easy to do that there when they're never really going to be in danger. <laughs> a place like Vic, the battle is like the the field is fighting for its life, yes. right? And so if we go out there and say our field is racist, you know, then <laughs> it's not helpful. The vice chancellors, I mean, they're, they're looking for any excuse to cut us and shut us down, right? And literally, I mean, there's languages at Vic now that are just not going to be taught. And so it's, it's just, it's not health. I mean, also the more important thing is I just think it's not true, but it's also kind of extremely kind of unstrategic to say, yeah, we're the field that hates itself. You know, that's just yeah. not going to convince anybody to, to sort of keep us in existence. Well, it's a great, it's a great discussion for another day too, because it's the self-loathing and um, the ones that are calling us fascists are actually fascists. Um, it's so inverted, the whole culture thing. And, of course, to me, um, I'd get rid of everything in a in a university and keep classics <laughs> and, and science. That's great. I can, I can get you behind know, I, that. I, I, no, really I mean, would. I, I actually, because, I mean, I, I, I think um, there should be a broad array of subjects. And I, I, yes. I am concerned at the moment, especially with the other European languages. I think those are important, too. Yes. There's a lot in the humanities that I would defend. Yeah. There's also stuff in the humanities that I honestly I find very hard to defend. I mean, yeah. I read an article in the spinoff a few weeks ago by um, I guess a colleague, but uh, and I'd like to sort of defend and be with colleagues. But I basically said, you know, I'm employed in in this field, but I'm not actually doing this field. I'm actually doing radical left activism. It basically sort of came out and said that, and I thought, yeah. okay, so why why are you getting taxpayer money for that? Because yeah. a lot of the country is right of center, right? And you just have to accept that people have different views. They're not. They're paying you to do that subject. They're not paying you to be a political activist. And if they knew that, they would probably be less supportive. And I think we've seen this across the Western world. We can see this in surveys, especially in the U.S., where they ask people questions like, "Do you think that universities are a force for good in society?" And there's been this huge drop in support, especially among uh, Republicans in the U.S. That basically the majority of Republicans now in the U.S. think that um, universities are a net ill they're, they're actually doing harm for uh, society and oh, well, all... i'm put me down firmly in that yeah game. a lot of people are thinking that way yeah you know i i um if my kids want to go to university they're going to have to have a written they're going to i'm going to get i've decided i'm going to have to get them to sit down and put in writing why and if it was to go off and study classics i would be behind it 100 percent, as long as it wasn't at brown university <laughs> and um, or Princeton, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, I, just I'm... the idea that when I was growing up, it was a great privilege to go to university, and it was just this wonderful mind-expanding universe, not just in the ideas of the subject that you were studying, but student life and the lecturers and the tutors and the experience was just wonderfully. It just blew my mind, you know. It just opened me up to the world, and um, you look at it now. And I've seen this with family and friends, bright little kids going off to university and studying engineering. One of them, and he came out with a closed mind, unable to reason or logic, but absolutely full of hubris. And when you pushed him, 
on why he thought what he did. It was because his lecture was very, very specialist in this field, and they said this. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness. Now, we're getting to the point. I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't mean to do all this. No, that's you. great. No, but it's actually a really good segue here, which is exactly that I think the problem with the one of the big problems with the modern university, with the universities at the moment, is exactly what you said, is that you you go into this, you know, you're paying to go or you're paying for your kid to go to, into this environment that's supposed to be mind expanding. They're supposed to be able to debate all these things and come to independent conclusions. And actually, you know, the space is different than that nowadays. It's more like, um, you know, you go into this space where people have less freedom to discuss things than in the outside world. And not only that, there's kind of an institutional view. And if you yes. go to Vic, you can see there are these posters around campus and they also have this up on screens around campus where it says, you know, Vic has no tolerance for gender inequality or racism or sexism. And, you know, I'm not pro-racism or sexism, but you kind of know what they mean. And nowadays yes. they have this very narrow view of it. And I think, you yes. know, one of the things they mean is probably you're not allowed to be critical of the gender ideology. You know, even yes. if you're a feminist, you know, you, yes. you can't be a gender critical feminist. And this is very strange to me. And I, I also always wonder who's put up those posters. And I think it's sort of um, diversity, equality and inclusion administrators. And also kind of like what sort of power do they have over me? Because in the Education Act, which sets up the universities in New Zealand, it's very clear that there is academic freedom. Universities have a requirement to uphold academic freedom. And that means that students and staff are allowed to hold pop, uh, unpopular or controversial opinions. So in theory, if push comes to shove, you know, the diversity, education, and inclusion administrators have no leg to stand on. But there seem to be quite a few of them. And on the other hand, I keep asking, can anybody show me an administrator, a non-academic position at a New Zealand university, or any university really, which is there to protect the freedom of speech and academic freedom as defined in the Education Act, as actually mandated by law, right? Because surely that's compliance. But there aren't any of those people. It's very odd. Very odd. But then when you know what's going on, it's not odd because there's this push, God knows. It's one of the mysteries to me of how it's unfolded. But let's go to what got you into studying what we call the bloat in universities, which is to say the rise of non-academic staff versus academic staff, and you can give us the numbers of that. And what got you into that? And what is it? What did you find? And what is its significance? Okay, well, uh, a few questions there. So I guess start at the beginning. Why did I get into this? Well, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I started working at the initiative and I, I went to Oliver Hartwich, the boss, and I said, what I really want to do is academic freedom. <laughs> so hopefully I'll be able to work on that uh, soon if Oliver's listening. Um, <laughs> but he said, and I think very wisely, he said, well, what you really want to do is kind of earn your spurs as a researcher in higher education first. So maybe choose something a little bit less controversial little bit more kind of database that you can look into. And I said, okay, how about this administrative bloat issue? Because I was aware, having read lots of stuff about you know controversies over the modern university, there's lots of literature in the States, often put out by think tanks actually, about administrative bloat, this idea that there are too many administrators and they're causing problems for free speech and they're raising student, they're making student fees too high and they're changing the nature of the university. So I thought, okay, well, you know, often in New Zealand, 
just because of there's sort of fewer people here, I guess. There's a lot of stuff which just isn't done or hasn't been done yet. And I thought, let's do that. And, and all the figures were there on the, well, the most important figures were there on the Ministry of Education website. Uh, it did take us quite a lot of time to kind of, we, we wanted to put it into context. We wanted to put the number of non-academics in New Zealand universities into context because just saying the numbers is kind of meaningless. So we also had to go and find articles and figures for, uh, we, we chose a small set of English speaking countries, which were kind of comparable and have very similar, well, quite similar university systems in some ways. So that was Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US. And uh, and what we expected to find when we started was that actually New Zealand would have fewer non-academic staff per academic than in somewhere like the States. Because if you read about administrative blood in the States, the, the schools or the universities that grab the headlines are places like Stanford. So I read this article a few months ago about how Stanford now has so many administrators that if you gave every undergraduate student a private butler, you, you took these administrators and, and sort of reallocated them. So every undergraduate student got a private butler. You could do that and you'd still have something like 2000 administrators left at the end. So that, that there is a are lot. More, there are more administrators by a big margin than students. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit, that one is a, is a little bit misleading because there's lots of uh, graduate students at Stanford and it doesn't sort yes. of take account of that, but it, but still, I mean, it's kind of shocking that there's more administrators than undergraduate students. Right. So yes, that's actually kind of amazing. Yes. Um, but so, so those are the universities that grab the headlines and it seems like Stanford really does have this problem and uh, other sort of really fancy pants, um, American universities. But, uh, yeah, if you look at the average figure from the States, it's actually lower than it is for us, the number of non-academics per academic. And so what we came out with in the end was that New Zealand has, so for every academic in a New Zealand university, there's something like 1.4 non-academics. In other words, there's sort of 40% more non-academic staff. And in some places, it's even higher. So in Otago, in the past few years, they've actually had 50 to 60% more non-academics than academic staff. In other words, the ratio is more like 1.5 or 1.6 to 1. So that's actually astonishing. So listeners should, should realize, I mean, the bottom line, I guess, is the majority of total staff at our universities, they're not lecturers and professors, which is what you might assume. They're actually administrators or non-academics, and they're sort of manage. They're often sort of managers, but also kind of librarians and things. But one of the other things we found actually is that uh, through time in all of these English-speaking countries, there have been more and more managers hired at universities, more sort of white-collar positions, and fewer and fewer kind of blue-collar, technical kind of frontline staff. So people like librarians and builders and carpenters and cleaners those people all get outsourced. So they're not really on the university books anymore. And so the, this non-academic staff, which at these universities is non-academic bureaucracy, which is enormous. It's also kind of overwhelmingly white collar. So you also get this homogenization. So it's this kind of bourgeois bureaucracy that is larger and it's sort of overshadowing the academic staff at our universities. Yes, I was shocked. And just correct me if I got the figures wrong, because I'm going by memory, but it was something like, 50% drop-off in librarians and research technicians and a 50% increase in administration and student welfare. That's exactly right. So executive staff. So we, we have to use the, the categories that the Ministry of Education uses. But yeah, the executive staff and student welfare staff, using their terms, those roughly double over the last 20 years as a proportion of total administrative staff. And technicians and librarians, they roughly have over the same period. That's extraordinary. 
Yeah, it is extraordinary. Although, as I said, um, it's also it's also typical of other English speaking systems yes. in the same period. So there, so we're all doing it uh, for some reason. And um, the yeah. and the and the the move also in your report is that like the grounds and ele- electricians, all that maintenance stuff, and you can understand this in the modern world. All that's contracted out. So whereas thirty years ago, a university would have electricians employed to maintain the system. You wouldn't do that now. You'd have a, a, a contract with a, a supplier of electricians and, and you'd ring them up and say there's a problem, they'd come and fix it. Likewise, with a lot of groundwork and it's it's contracted out, cleaning is probably contracted out, whereas previously you'd probably have university cleaners. Um, just because it's more efficient to do so and yet notwithstanding that, there has been this explosion and we can sort of get it because when I went to Canterbury, there was like a student health service with doctors probably dealing with STDs and stuff. And there were, which I never went to see once. And then I think, sorry. Yeah. So you say, I had to quickly add that. Um, Then there was, just in case my wife's listening, um, <laughs> then there was um, a welfare officer. Like, I think one. Whereas now, because of the nature of the student and the nature of society, there'd be a huge expansion, I'm sure, in welfare officers because we had that dreadful headline of that student uh, um, dying, committing suicide, I can't remember which, and being not missed in the dorm at Canterbury. Uh, yeah, they found him only later. Yeah. Yeah. So you, they have this, everyone's all, you know, under health and safety and all the rest of it. The, the university has this huge duty of care, which would have been not heard of when I was at university, I'm sure. And we, we sort of were more resilient. We looked after each other more. And that's having to be picked up by welfare staff. And then we can't imagine going to the welfare office and saying, I'm feeling a bit depressed, whereas now that's sort of a thing that you do. So that's one thing. And then, as you say, would that be fair comment in a university now? That that oh, welfare- yeah. I- yeah, I definitely think that's true. Student welfare, as it was, we just saw student welfare staff roughly doubled over the last twenty years. Um, so there is evidence for a rise in uh, anxiety and depression among yeah. people in general in society, and especially between, uh, especially among um, young people. So Generation Z and people debate whether that uh, shows a real effect or whether or to what extent it's. Um, a product of just expanded definitions that in the past Please. people would have described themselves as worried or stressed. And now they yeah. say uh, anxious. Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think that there's evidence that there is some real effect. And then there's also a whole debate about why there's more anxiety and depression in this group. Mm-hmm. And I'm very sympathetic to to that actually. Um, but then you have to ask, okay, so what's the best way of treating these people? Um, and you know, does it need to be done on campus? So that's another question. It, maybe these people could get good treatment off campus as well. So there's been this assumption 
across the board, I think in English speaking, in the English speaking world and universities that you have to have all these services on campus. And that's partly why the universities become so bloated. And it, I mean, that's probably one of the more justifiable things, the student welfare thing, right? But it's not just that. It's also, especially if you look at the kind of richer American places, it's also sort of sports facilities and, you know, swimming pools and, and uh, all the, all these sort of various types of support staff, which in some of the posture American places, it kind of turns them into these kind of country clubs, you know, uh. you just, they have grand pianos and they, and they have uh, volleyball, outdoor volleyball places and all this stuff and all, all these support staff for that. So I think that, the sort of the therapists are probably the more justifiable side of this. Now, New Zealand universities don't don't necessarily have all that stuff, but they still have grown in those departments for the, over the last 30, 40 years. Like even things like recreation centers, I think, are much more uh, are much larger and, and, and better staffed than in, in the old days. Hmm. Um, although I have to say that actually like the the, the bigger categories, the, the growth, which which have seen the, the categories which have seen the most growth, they're also things like executive staff. So that's just yeah, kind of that. that's just we've kind done, of managers. There's strategists, basically. We've done that. We've done the uh, welfare. And can I, can I just to, add? Can I just sorry. add one thing? Sorry, because you, you asked like another question a while, a while back, which was good. Are you talking about this? Which is this whole whole thing of they, they're outsourcing all of the technicians and the cleaners and stuff. And I just want to point up the irony of that because it's really interesting and peculiar that. So over the last 20, 30 years, we've basically said to the janitors and the builders and the carpenters and the painters thanks guys we're not going to give you a proper job we're just going to contract you out um so those people are still actually on campus working they're just not part of the university community in the same sense so you know they probably they're probably not part of the tertiary education union and uh, i don't know but i mean the various ways in which they're sort of more distant from the university community and at the same time we have all these academics who are more likely than most people in society to describe themselves as Marxists, they're constantly going on about social justice and how they're on the side of the common man, sorry, the common person. That's very ironic, right? Because they're also, they're not doing anything for, for those people. They're just they're in this institution, which is actually treating them very, the, the white collar bourgeois people are treating them extremely well of these long-term contracts and the, the little people all got outsourced. So yeah, very strange. It's almost a feature of left wingers to be dismissive of working people. And you know, Karl Marx was, for example. But well, I he liked his he liked his maid a lot. He Pardon, liked I think her that was lot, unfair. But he wasn't very nice to her son. That's right, yeah. Um or his son as well. Um but I noticed it even around Parliament. And not to pick on my party or me, but like I'd noticed national MPs chatting away to security guards that know them by name around Parliament, and the Labour MPs would just walk past them. And it was very stark and odd to me. It's this hypocrisy of it. And it's not one or two instances, it's everywhere you look. And here you have the university which would be filled with diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. And as you say, they've sacked the janitor and contracted out. So Pueblo from, you know, Brazil is now on a contract. And um, well, a lot of them seem to be Ethiopian, actually. Ethiopian. Uh, the cleaners, yeah. 
and they're on a contract. And at the same time, we're paying millions of dollars to people to ensure that we have diversity and socioeconomic justice and inclusion. The hypocrisy is massive. And that's where we come to this administrative staff because are they all sort of sitting there writing strategies and explaining how we can prevent Don Brash from giving a speech on um, National Party history on campus? What 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 the hell are they doing? What are the admi- I get the welfare staff. We get what they're doing. What are we've got computers now? We've got you know we've got. There's no yeah. one there with a balance sheet writing it in a book. What the hell are these administrative staff possibly doing in a university when it it literally doesn't have to earn its money in a sense. It just balloons in from government. Oh my God, what are they doing? Well, I think that to be fair, like uh, because there's so many more computers, I mean, there's quite a big like IT staff and I actually find those guys, really, they're usually guys, I find them really helpful, right? Because I don't really understand computers. And so yeah. sometimes there's a snafu and I'm like, I'm helpless and I just phone them up and they're very helpful. And actually in general, sort of when Michael and I wrote this report, we kind of wanted to be really clear that in general, we've actually had quite a good experience of university administrators. So the people who are helping the frontline, what you might call the frontline yes. mission of the university, which is le- learning and teaching and researching, those people can be extremely helpful. So librarians are obviously helpful to, to research. And the, the ones that I've had contact with in Vic, as I say, have been very helpful. What about the strategists and stuff? What are they doing? I don't really know, but I mean, every so often we get the stuff coming down from on high. Uh, about like a five-year plan or something, or the university tr- strategic goals, and often they bring they roll out this new program. A few years ago, they were we suddenly had these emails being like, "We're going to transform the organization of the university." It's this new plan. It had a Maori name, but I can't remember, and no one really understood what it was. But anyway, it was this huge thing. It was going to transform everything, and all the academics had to kind of immediately be like, "Stop! Don't do that!" You know, and explain to them why you couldn't do this, and it didn't make any sense. Um, and this was at a time when, you know, we were already kind of university was already struggling in various ways. And so then they kind of had to walk it back and say, okay, we're not going to do this. And so everyone just sort of wasted a whole lot of time because of this. And, um, so some of them are doing things, which I I would say quite dubious. I mean, I had this experience once where, um, I was teaching about, um, Alexander the great and, uh, and Alexander the great, when he died his he didn't have a clear successor and, one of the possibilities for successor was his his brother, his half brother, Philip Aridaeus. And the sources suggest that there was something up with Philip Aridaeus. Like you, and I said in the lecture, I was sort of groping for the the politically correct term. So I said, it seems that he was a bit special. He was, and I think you're meant to say now intellectually handicapped or something. So this student wrote this series of really long emails. Student for actually from quite a privileged background. Um, uh, I think she was the granddaughter of a former prime minister. She wrote all these long emails then about how this was ableist and terrible, and we needed to withdraw the textbook, which um, which called Philip Herodias, um retarded, which which was a technical term as as recently as the nineties. And anyway, and so I went went to all these meetings, and then um, oh, at some God. point, at some point, they handed me this sheet and said, "Oh, this has been produced by the diversity people, disabilities services." And it said something, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, you have you can't refer to people in any terms that makes it that suggests that they are different. Right? Which is <laughs> which doesn't make any sense, right? It's not even coherent. You know, it's a so stupid why do we way of have thinking a diversity about it, it, officer. I mean, they're obviously different, right? So obviously I think 
there, there might be some argument. There is an argument. I think you should try and be nice and sensitive Inclusive. and respect yeah, yeah, people who are Polite. who are different. But that's the whole point is that they're different in some way, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't be a, an issue. So, I mean, so that kind of thing, I think, is just a waste of time and, and has to go. And you've got the scenario where it's very hard to explain what happened after Alexander the Great died when it was sort of like fight it out fellows and um, his empire was carved up by his successors and um, sort of things settled down eventually. But you have to explain why his brother was passed over and saying that he was special is a very polite way of putting it and saying he was retarded is very clear, you know, or he wasn't up to it or something. I mean, you've got to actually explain it, don't you? How do you explain it? Well, we, um, there is, I mean, most historians do think that it's not just that he wasn't sort of very good or something. There was some, there seems to have been some kind of intellectual handicap. Yes. So it's just a question of how, how you refer to that. But I think, you know, it's it's kind of exhausting because I taught that course, I've taught that course now 12 times, I think, in, in 11 years. and. Um, and I, I, you know, it's the same material. So I often, I think every time I mentioned there was this problem with succession and there, there were these options within the family and one was this half brother. And so I probably taught, probably taught like a thousand students, probably more than a thousand students that course. And I got one, one complaint about that. And of course, this is this weird thing at the moment where there's this sort of like minority tyranny, like the people who really care about that, they really care about that. And they will write you like these really long emails about it. And then there's a whole office, which is kind of telling you what's the way you should talk about those people. And it really doesn't reflect most people's concerns, right? Most people's concerns yeah. are just like, oh, I'm kind of interested in classics. I want to hear about Alexander the Great. You know, they're, they're not trying to catch you out on the use of terms. So I think that, that that bit of the university bureaucracy, even though it's probably quite modest, actually, in New Zealand, but I think that just exacerbates these problems around free speech. Yes, because um, someone who's busy and doing a productive job wouldn't take much interest in the student's long emails on a lecturer who knows his subject and is doing a great job enthusing students because in casting around for a word, he said, you know, special, and that you had a textbook, um, a very good textbook, that uses the, the, the word in back some years, retarded. Yeah, yeah. And, and, if you were busy, you'd say, oh, gosh, you know, poor thing, we'll sort of listen to her and, and take it on board and sort of maybe say something and say, look, you know, someone got upset, and you'd move on. But, of course, now it's like a federal case. Yeah. And um, we have seen, and, of course. Well, and I will it. say as well that there's this strange thing, which I mentioned earlier, where it's kind of like in these situations, it's all there's always some office which is supporting the sort of politically correct yes. stuff. And I always sort of think, okay, oh, well, so who, who's the administrator? Where's the team that is here to support academic freedom and to support yes. the lecturers? Yes. Oh, you, you don't have anyone for that. Okay, well, that's a shame. You know, I, mean, I, I, I think that one of the things is um, is a little bit controversial. I don't really know what's going on, but like one theory is that the universities nowadays, because there's it's all based on this bums on seats model that, you know, you get your funding yes. according to how many students you have. Everybody's terrified of, of um, the students turning off the students, turning, you know, the, the students yeah. sort of think, oh, this is a racist lecture, ableist lecture or whatever, so I won't go anymore. But I think people need to just sort of not panic and they need to kind of look around. And as I said, the reality is that in that course, um, 
you know, there were, I've taught thousands of students. I look at my student feedback. It's usually extremely good. You know, I say it was a really good lecturer, very enthusiastic, drew, drew us into the material. And then there's like one person who's just very mad about this word because yeah. she's, you know, she has this politi- certain political view, which is, I think, fairly extreme. So I, I think that, you know, it's kind of like a, with, if you're at a business and you're selling coffee and everybody loves it. And then one person one is person. mad at you. The, the the business the, the sensible thing to do for that business is just to carry on because yes. you might turn off that one person but you actually you want to keep doing what you're doing because everybody else is happy right and there's a danger too and we see that with Jordan Peterson because without being condescending it's very easy as a university professor to be precious and to be very protective of your academic freedom. And so when you have an administrator walk into your office and start lecturing you about how you, basically your speech code, right? It's understandably, understandable why a professor would react sharply to that. Because I've had the good fortune to be a university lecturer. And to make it engaging, you're sort of on the edge of it. Because you're trying to keep it lively and keep students engaged. And you're literally like a comedian or something. You're on stage and you're in the moment and you're feeling the bulk of the class. And I know I would have someone squirming because you're on the edge and, you know, describing it. And and, and if you suddenly have to be conscious of a speech code or the one person that could possibly take offense, your lectures are going to become so much less spontaneous and so boring in terms of how you'd present it, which again yep. is part of a feature of being a lefty is to be extremely boring. There's no jokes, there's no humor, there's no um outlandishness. It's all just you could just give up and you could just get up there and yep. read your speech notes and hand them across to the yeah, uh, authorities and say here's exactly what I said. No, I mean they're the new they're the new Puritans, right? That's used yes. to be a kind of Christian conservative thing to have a yes. metaphorical stick up your um, behind, but yes. now I think it's gone to the other side. So it's very interesting to see. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think nowadays, especially you have with this with this bums on seats model, it's kind of like a popularity contest. So you, when you lecture nowadays, you sort of have to be a stand up comedian. And yes. So I put lots of jokes in and I try and make it engaging. And you can see, you know, you, you know, like you, you get this weird kind of feedback, even though people are silent, you can tell when they're looking at their phone and when they're actually yeah. looking at Facebook or, or whatever they look at nowadays on their computer. So you're trying to like say, no, no, this stuff is important. Yeah. And um, yeah. And sort of jokes, you know, it's kind of hard nowadays to know what you can sort of get away with, even though no. it's probably not the way of thinking about jokes, but, but there's also this thing, which is actually in some ways even more important. And that's just that there are realities about the ancient world and about whatever the subject is, whether it's Shakespeare mm. or biology or whatever, there are realities which are now deeply on PC and they, they take you into areas where you're kind of walking on eggshells. So the ancient world was, it was a beautiful, interesting, complex place. It was also kind of a horrible place. I mean, people yeah. killed each other, you know, they, they were slaves. Caesar, even Caesar they, you know, killed vast numbers of people. They're slaves. Sex with their sisters. Sex with the, well, the, yeah, the Egypt and the, with the pharaohs and, and even the Ptolemies actually. But, Underage girls. So I, I, I do. Yeah. I talk about that and I talk about, and there's, there's sexual slavery in ancient Greece. There's, you yes. know, pederasty, you have older yes. men and, and really actually sort of teen male lovers yeah. in many cases. And it's like, obviously you and I and everyone listening probably is sensible enough to realize that 
when I'm talking about that in the lecture, I'm not recommending it, right? No. It's something that happened in the past and you need to be aware of. But nowadays it's always like, is there some going to be some radical st student or staff talk, member or whatever talk, who's, he talks who's talked about that? He must think yeah. it's, you know, a good thing to do or something. So yeah. Is, yeah. Oh, and, and, no. by, and by the way, I mean, so one of the problems with the, this, these kinds of um, conversations is often just that, so it may be the case that I'm just paranoid and I'm just hypersensitive. Right. Um, but this is why it's important with the academic freedom and free speech stuff to, to actually look for broader sources of evidence. So we've actually, uh, I, I've been involved in a couple of surveys with the, Free Speech Union, and also with uh, Heterodox New Zealand, which is a group of academics concerned about this kind of thing. And we just ask students and, and academic staff, how do you feel about discussing these subjects nowadays in the classroom? And there, there are things like Treaty of Waitangi and gender and sexuality and race and so on and so forth. And, um, and it is an effect. So there, there's a significant number of them, a third to a half in most cases of academic staff or students who say that, yeah, this is actually something that I don't feel free to talk about at university. So it's kind of reassuring. It's not just me. It's a, it's a more general thing. That's extraordinary. And when the universities are facing a funding crisis as they are, they remind me a bit of the old Ministry of Works because pre-1984, Whenever the Ministry of Works, we had, this is before your time in New Zealand, we had a Ministry of Works that did everything, built dams, repaired roads, whatever. And whenever a government wanted to save money, they'd cut the budget of the Ministry of Works. And the two guys who cleaned the snow off the Lewis Pass would get stood down for the winter, right? <laughs> and then no one could get across Lewis Pass and say, oh, yes, that's because of cuts. And the money would be quickly restored. And um, you feel the same with the universities because they say, oh, you know, you're under a funding constraint. Oh, okay, well, we'll stop producing doctors. Um, we'll stop producing, you know, like really good things that we want. But what your report highlights is there's something like one and a half administrators or non-academic staff is a better word to every academic. And so that's where you'd be looking for your savings. You wouldn't necessarily be yep. closing half the medical school or cutting the students in the medical school. Yeah, you, and, you'd think so, uh, you know, also because, um, you know, academics take a lot of training and yes. also the nature of the academic job market is that once you lose them, like once you sack people from New Zealand, they're just going to leave the country. Yes. You're not really going to get them back. Whereas administrative staffing, I mean, it's a little bit different. It's also, you know, it's a big thing to lose your job in any situation, but it's a bit more like you'll probably go work for the government. It's a sort of, they have these general administrative skills. But uh, so the academics actually get paid more on average than the non-academics. Yes. So that means that universities actually spend more on, on academics than yes. non-academics, even though they're slightly, they're, they're significantly more non-academics. So, but New Zealand universities, actually, it's interesting that if you look at the university reports, not all of them report how much they're spending on non-academics, which I find really interesting. But Otago, Canterbury, and Auckland do. And so in our report, we looked at those ones, and they spend about 45% of their total salary spend on non-academic salaries. So it's almost half. So it's a significant expenditure. So I, I would agree with you that if you're a vice chancellor now trying to make these very difficult decisions about effectively who to sack, there are lots of factors that go into that. But I, I, I do think that it, you know... If, 
it's very difficult to justify these extremely high non-academic numbers, right? Because they're, interna they're internationally high. So you can't just say, as people have said in response to the report, oh, the universities have gotten more complicated over time. They have, but they have in all these other countries too. So we still have to justify why the numbers are so yeah. high. And if you look at the the plans that are currently in place for the number of non-academics and academics that universities uh, have in scope for cuts, it looks like if they go through with those numbers, they're not going to change the ratio at all, right? So you, what we should see is we should be moving towards a decrease in that ratio, right? We should be looking at making it more like one-to-one -one or even having fewer non-academics and academics like in other countries like the States and the UK. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. Well, and you can understand why, because I just suddenly realized what's happened for sure. When you sign up to being Titariti-led university, you're going to have to have a whole lot of treaty specialists advising you on proper protocol. And that is inevitable. And they can never be sacked because that would be to abandon the principles of the treaty and to be racist. Also, no doubt, the universities have signed up to rainbow ticks galore. And that would mean specialist advisors checking everything, measuring everything to ensure that you're using that Professor James Kirstead is using gender-inclusive language when he's covering the Peloponnesian War and <laughs> the destruction of Carthage. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's... Um, so it's not it's not something we studied directly, I have to say, yes. in this report. So it's like, ideally, we'd ha we're going to have more time at some point to do this. But what you, what you need to do, this is why we didn't do it, because it's a little bit more difficult to do. The, the, uh, no university lists anywhere on its annual report. This is how many people we're, we've hired or we're employing in the diversity, education, and inclusion space. Yeah. But we could go through all the websites and just count, you know, do like yeah. a yeah. literal sort of head count of um, the number of people who are doing that. My, my suspicion is, again, that we'd probably have fewer of those people than in fancy pants American universities, yeah. private universities. But there are some of them, and I've seen these job titles. And even in the group of people who aren't non-academics, but that are academic administrators, pro vice chancellors and th those types of people, there are lots of uh, positions which have in brackets behind the Maturanga Maori or, you know, pro vice chancellor for Maori. And, you know, people justify these in, in various ways. Well, you've uh, got but, a de facto co-governance, haven't you, operating in a university? Well, I don't know. It depends what you mean by pro-governance. But definitely there's the, the assumption in the university sphere is that, yeah, we need to have we need to have separate uh, a separate body of administrators. So a good number of administrators in themselves who are just dealing with sort of Maori issues and Pacifica issues. And I don't know how much of that is fully justified, really. I mean, because one of the things they say is, well, their, their educational outcomes are worse. But there are lots of groups in the university that have worse educational outcomes that we don't have a whole set of different administrators for, for example, males. So men uh, get fewer degrees at this point. They're outnumbered uh, by women significantly at the undergraduate level. And um, yeah, so there's no representation for them, right? So it's just this really weird thing how it's, there's, there's a sort of cultural, there's a sort of political culture in the university and everyone just assumes we have to have these pro-vice-chancellor and sub-vice-chancellor and super backwards reverse vice-chancellors for Maori and Pacifica. But it, that situation is kind of not tracking reality. Like people aren't checking in with the evidence mm. to see this actually kind of makes sense. Just picking up that female-male ratio, is that seen in other jurisdictions, do you know, James? Um, 
Well, so my colleague, Michael Johnston, is more up to breast with the statistics on this. I think that in a secondary school level, there's also this problem that men are behind. Now, it, it's interesting. It catches a lot of people by surprise because if you go back 30 or 40 years, men were ahead on all these on all these numbers. But but it, it's been at least like the last 10 or 20 years. It's actually been the reverse. So women do better. It, on the whole, educationally nowadays in developed countries, women are doing much better than men. They're getting more degrees. Now, there are certain fields. So if you look at PhD achievement, certain fields like engineering and math and uh, physics where their men are very dominant numerically. So very the vast sex, majority very, of, very sexist disciplines. Uh, well, that, that, that's always the assumption, right? But that's not back to the warranted. Greeks. So, but then yeah. there are also all of these fields which are hugely dominated numerically by women. So mm -hmm. one of them is psychology. Uh, social sciences uh, in general, I think, are a little bit uh, skewed towards women. Uh, and social work, uh, postgraduate degrees in social work are hugely mm. skewed towards women. And so it's, again, this weird phenomenon where everyone is focusing on engineering and saying, isn't that sexist? But nobody focuses on psychology and says that's sexist, no. right? Even though it's the same no. thing. You're looking at the same evidence as more men no. and more women. But you're treating you're going to have way. to get up to speed with the culture wars because you, um, woman, it's the patriarchy because we've got the power, but um, going right back to Plato and Socrates and Alexander the Great, and we're having to correct history and put it right now. Um, it's extraordinary. And I'm talking to Dr. James Kirstead. Uh, he spends his time half at Victoria University teaching classics, which is, I think, beautiful subject. and critical, critical to the defense of what, individualism versus tribalism, Western civilization, Western philosophy, you need to understand where it came from and what the alternatives are and have your mind expanded. And he spends half his time at the New Zealand Initiative, which strangely relies on business support and is the bastion of free speech and free inquiry here in New Zealand because they have protocols and procedures in place to ensure it. And here we have our universities now who have become closed and feudalistic uh, increasingly in their outlook. So the whole thing is filled with irony, James, we look forward to making you a regular and looking for your future reports. What are you working on right this moment for the initiative? Well, I'm having a little bit of a, a lull. I mean, I'm writing the odd article for them, but um, I'm actually sort of thinking about what to do for my next report. So the next the next mission is to convince Oliver that I've earned my chops now and I can write about academic freedom. <laughs> right. That's really my the main thing I was concerned about that led me to come to the initiative. Great. Well, thanks. Thank, thanks for joining us today. It's been wonderful. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. And what a fascinating thing. We got into talk about administrative numbers and we ended up doing this long yep. dive into classic studies. And I didn't intend to do that, but that was it's, great. It's, yep. it's great. And it's great to have someone who can just have it all at their fingertips. It's a beautiful thing. And um, I appreciate it very much. You're on 
Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Oh, and remember, you can send me a text at 2057 and email at inbox at rallycheck.radio. We love hearing from you. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.